0: amongst family and friends. Um, I'm happy to be here with you guys, um, and I'm happy to share God's word and kind of show what um, God has been showing me in the scriptures. And, um, and so early on when Pastor Sam had invited me and says, hey, would you like to preach today? I said, um, yes. And then I followed up quickly, was like, but can I pick whatever I get to preach on? And he said, yes. I was like, Okay, absolutely, because I knew exactly what it was what I wanted to share with you today. It's something I've shared with my students in the past, but I want to share with you the story in John chapter 4 of the encounter with the woman at the well. This story is very personal to me. Um, I I have walked this road along with the woman, as many of you guys here today, and I have been blessed by having incredible examples of Christ um, from the body of Christ to help me along that way. So it's part of what I want to pass on, uh, what God has shown me, uh, but also I just love this story, because it represents for me a time when the scriptures became more alive than what they already were. Does that kind of make sense? We always pray that we would have eyes to see, and some, and, and a number of years ago, I was reading this story, and I was like, I think I get it now. And so that's part of what I want to share with you today, um, and so we're going to have fun, uh, it's going to be wonderful, and I hope that you were blessed. But before we get to the scripture, we got to do a little bit of setup first, Okay. So as we know, we're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 4 today, uh, and we're going to be talking about the woman at the well, but we have to cover some ground first before we get there, and before we do that, let's set the timer on my watch, (laughs) otherwise I'll get worked up, because I'm fed and I'm hydrated, so I can go for a while. Okay, there we go. All right, so uh, let's do some kind of groundwork to kind of build where we're going to be in. So in the Gospel of John, John has a very clear agenda that he's trying to do with his Gospel, and he's trying to convince people that Jesus is who he says he is. And one of the ways that he does that early in the book of John, chapters 2, 3, and 4, is he tells this collection, this series of stories, this f- series of four stories of Jesus interacting with major institutions of Jewish life and culture, okay? And so you guys are familiar with them. So the first story is the wedding of Cana. And then after that, he goes down to Jerusalem, and it tells a story of him cleansing the temple. And then there's a story when he meets a rabbi, Nicodemus, who is also a Pharisee, and they spend all night talking. And then after that, it leads us to the fourth story, which we're going to be talking about today, of Jesus meeting a woman at a sacred well. So we have wedding, temple. Rabbi and well. Now, the first three to us would be kind of obvious. Of course, yes, rabbis, temples, weddings. That seems pretty obvious that that would be a major institution of Jewish life and culture. But a well? Really? And and so we kind of need to do a little more digging to kind of understand how the original audience would be receiving this. Okay, so the story of a sacred well has its origins in the Torah, in the book of Genesis and in Exodus, and it's a pattern of story that's been established through the patriarchs and later on into Moses, okay? And so essentially what happens is when this story shows up, someone is going to get married, Okay? And so the first instance is when Abraham sends a, rep- a representative um, to get a wife for Isaac and the representative Eliezer meets Rebekah at a well. Jacob later on when he is also searching for his own wife meets his wife Rachel at a well. And then Moses when he's in the wilderness of Midian he meets Zipporah at a Well, see, you guys already get the pattern, okay? Now, this is no simple, like, quaint stories, okay? This is Moses. This is the first and greatest prophet. This is Isaac and Jacob. These men represent the continuation of the covenant relationship with Yahweh and his chosen people. So these types of stories were absolutely core to their group identity, to who they saw themselves as. We are the people of God, and we know it because of these stories here. So they have deep roots within Jewish culture. They are deeply treasured, and we're about to see John do something surprising as he retells the story of this woman and Jesus as they interact. So let's get the template real quick. So in Meeting at the Well 101, there are six steps that are expected, and they're going to be looking for, okay? So number one, man travels through the land. Number two, man meets woman by a well. Three, water is drawn. Huh? See it? Okay, anyways, okay. Uh, four, new spreads of the encounter. Five, hospitality is offered. And then finally, six, the two parties join in marriage. You guys can go to Genesis and Exodus and look it up. If you don't believe me, that's fine. You will see this pattern repeated thoroughly. And so that sets us up for about to move into the text itself that we're going to be looking at today. But before we go any further, I do want to put something else in your mind to be thinking about as we walk through Scripture together. Oftentimes, we do sermons or uh, Bible study, devotions, accountability groups. Oftentimes, whenever Scripture is involved, the first and most obvious question is, what does it mean? And that's a good question, but I would argue with today that it may not be the best question. Now please do not misunderstand me meaning is very important and it does have its time and place but I want to I want to submit to you this morning a different question to ask as we walk through scripture together and this is the question how is the author asking the reader to envision Jesus How is John, the author of this gospel, asking the original Jewish audience and by extension us here today, how is he asking us to look and to see Jesus? So I want you guys to be thinking about that as we move through scripture. So let's, so with your permission, you guys ready? All right, awesome. Okay, here we go. So we have, a lot, we have a big chunk of text today, and so what I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to be breaking it up into three stages or three movements, and so we're going to be going through big blocks of text, and so I don't actually have it up on the screen today, but I know you guys are here with your Bibles, um, so you guys will be okay. So I'd invite you guys to open those up and read with me. We're in John chapter 4. Okay, I hear a lot of page turning all of a sudden. That's awesome. I tricked you. Okay, here we go. So this is stage one. This is what I am calling, this is my title. I'm calling it The Avoidance. All right? And so in here, we're going to get our introduction to our characters. We're going to get our motivations for why they're there. And then we're going to start to build into the tension that is built into the story. And besides that, one of the reasons why I ask you guys that question um, with that, How is the author? Because there is a tension that's built into the story with Jesus and the woman with the well, but there's also a secondary tension built into the storyteller and the audience whom is hearing the story. Okay, So two tensions. There's a tension within the story itself, because that's how stories work, but there's also a tension in how the storyteller is telling the story to the audience. As we talked about, John has a very specific agenda that he's trying to accomplish by telling you these stories. Okay, stage one, the avoidance, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now, when Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was winning and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and set out once more from Galilee. Okay, so on the map, that's from going south to north. Okay, and verse 4. But he had to pass through Samaria. Now he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, since he was tired from the journey, sat down right beside the well, and it was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink, for his disciples had gone off in the town to buy supplies. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how can you a Jew ask me a Samaritan woman for a water to drink for Jews use nothing in common with the Samaritans? Jesus answered her, If you had known the gift of God and who it is who said to you, Give me some water to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said to him, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he gave us this well and drank from it from himself, along with his sons and his livestock. Jesus replied, everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty have to come here to draw water. Okay, so the reason why I'm calling this section the avoidance because that is how she is being introduced into the story. And there's a lot of clues that give us this, this notion, okay? So first clue is the time of day. It was noon. Second clue, she was by herself, all right? So in that culture, going to the well was a group activity, it was a social activity, and it was a morning and evening activity. You didn't have time to go get water during lunchtime because when the sun goes down, we all go to bed. So it's a morning and evening activity, lunchtime, water breaks, no, no, we don't do that. And so the very fact that she was there gives us a clue to how she moves through the world. And then we also know that Jesus said he had to go through Samaria. And so there's a sense of purposefulness to that, especially, and then in some ways, and you talk to some scholars, they have this idea that in Jewish culture, it was not, uh, how do we say this? In Jewish culture at that time, they tried very hard to avoid going through Samaria. In fact, the typical route a Jew would travel if they're going from Jerusalem up north to Galilee is they would go east across the Jordan River and then north and then west back into Galilee because Samaria was the bad part of town. Don't go through Samaria. You might get robbed. Don't go through Samaria. Those people are there. Or especially in Jesus' case as a Jewish rabbi, don't go through Samaria, your reputation is at stake. If people know you're going there, they think like, there's no good reason to go through Samaria. And so already Jesus says, I have to go through there. And then he gets to the well and he's tired, but there's part of me that wonders if he's there for a purpose and he knows what's happening next. And he's sitting to rest, but he's also sitting to wait for her arrival. Because at the heart of the story, it is a story of two crossroads colliding together. It is Jesus purposely traveling to meet her and her purposely traveling, not traveling, purposely trying to avoid others. And this is where the tension builds into the story because this is where the worlds collide. And so immediately, her immediate response, Jesus starts the conversation, and she's immediately, keep at arm's length. And she's very dismissive and suspicious. You can imagine, I'm going to get the water to be by myself, and I turn the corner, and a Jewish guy is standing right by the well. Oh. oh, really? Okay, all right, don't talk to him. Don't make contact. Get the water and go. Get the water and go. Get the water and go. Give me a drink. No! Did he really talk to me? Okay, and then she responds, what are you doing? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk. I'm dangerous to you. You're by yourself. I'm a woman with a reputation. Like, don't. Let's just, let's just keep it professional. Let's, I'm going to get the water and go. You sit there and rest. Okay? And Jesus keeps the conversation going. He's not being distracted. He's not being swayed. And he talks a little more. And look at her second response. She starts to mock him. She starts to tease him. Almost as if a way, like, if I offend him just enough, he's going to say, you're not worth my time, and walk away. Oh, oh, living water. So this well, it's not good enough for you? Wow, wow, strange Jewish rabbi guy I've never seen before in my life. You, this water's not good enough for you? It was good enough for Jacob. So what's, what's wrong here, okay? But then Jesus keeps going and pushing And he is not being distracted, despite her best efforts. But look at this, though. This is the cool thing. In the four stories we talked about, okay, wedding, temple, rabbi, and well, the common theme that's uniting these is that when Jesus starts speaking, people either get angry because of what he's saying, or they get confused because they don't understand what he's saying. And right here, at this point, we're in the avoidance stage, okay? uh, Jesus starts to confuse her, and, she did, and this is where her confusion starts to grow and develop, because he starts talking about living water. He's like, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me, and I would give you living water, okay? And the reason for that confusion is because he's speaking a different language, Now us, we are modern Christians, and so we are very familiar, and we've known most of our lives that living water equals spiritual life or something like that. We are very familiar with the idea of living water being a spiritual term, but I want to point out to you that in that time, in that day, living water was not a spiritual term. It was a practical term, which is why she's confused, because Jesus is pulling now a spiritual metaphor out of a practical term. Living water in that day was just another way of saying flowing water, like flowing water in a river or uh, and from, from spring to a babbling brook. Okay? If you took an ancient Jew and you took them into your kitchen, you turned on the sink, they would say, wow, you have living water in your house. That's amazing. It was a practical term, not a spiritual term. But Jesus is using it in spirit. He is building a spiritual metaphor because what he is doing is he is alluding back to Genesis chapter two. Okay, and I told my students there's no (laughs) there is no sermon about the New Testament that I can't make about the Old Testament. Okay, because Jesus is alluding back to Genesis chapter two. If you guys go there, you'll see in Genesis chapter two the Garden of Eden is described as being the source. Of four rivers that flow out of Eden down and across the world. Okay? And if we remember, what tree is in the Garden of Eden? Not the tree of good and evil. We know about that one. What's the other tree in the Garden of Eden? The tree of eternal life. Yes! Okay, so he's building out to a bigger picture than what she can barely contain. And so, rightly, she is confused. All right, And what else I want to point out before we get into the other part, we're getting ready to move into the next stage of this conversation, but what I want to point out to you guys is a very interesting fact, in that in this story, John never refers to her as a sinner. Does she have sin? Of course. She's human. She's like you and I, sinful creatures. Absolutely. We're not arguing that, but her character is not marked as a sinner She's marked as a woman. So, with that being said, let's move into the next stage of this conversation, which is what I'm calling the collision. In John chapter 4, we're going to go, but well, this is from 16 down to 26. He said to her, Go call your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Right. You are when you said you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the man you are living with now is not your husband. This you have said truthfully. The woman said, Sir, I see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Okay, sidebar, that's Mount Gerizim. Okay? And Jesus or not and you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people, such as his worshipers. God is spirit, and the people who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. Whenever he comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus said to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So this is where the conversation is going from polite to more focused. And some of you guys are able to see it, but what I want to point out to you, the woman's anxiety levels is steadily increasing because she's trying to distract him using this. It's not working. Distract him using this. It's not working. Oh, he's not going anywhere. He's still talking to me. Okay. (sighs) She didn't have a brown paper bag. Okay, but just so you know, she's uncomfortable. Can we agree to that? Okay, cool. Let's keep going. Now, this is one of the things that has continued to capture my imagination with this one, because this is a story that John is telling where it's just Jesus and her. No one's there, so he's telling this, um, was it retroactively? Does that, that make sense? I don't know why that word popped in my mind. Maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe not. Okay, okay. And and so there's part of it going on that I'm like, I wonder what it was like. And that captures my curiosity when I think about this story for the past six or eight years. Because I want to ask you guys a question. Those of you in here today, how many of you guys ever heard this story, either in a sermon or in your own Bible reading? Raise your hands if you've ever heard this story before today. Okay, cool. Now, next question i want to ask you guys, how many of you guys have ever stopped and said, I wonder what vocal tone they're using? Anyone? And see, this is one of the things. Once again, for us as modern Western Christians, it is good for us to humble ourselves and to think back, what was it like for the original audience? Because we, we have only ever known the Bible as written down and complete in one unit, Unless you've got the big fancy Bibles where they've got like six, seven books. Anyway, let's not get distracted. And so, we've only ever known the Bible is written down. But before the Bible was assembled in the writings it is, the stories of the gospel were told orally. And in the oral tradition, tone plays a big role because you can use the same sentence and change the tone, and it can change your interpretation. And I want to give you guys an example especially with this sentence right here, I have no husband. I'm going to say it two times in two different tones, and you guys tell me, well, or just, just wonder and be curious as to what's going on. Jesus called her, go get your husband, tell him to come here. The woman replied, I have no husband. That's tone one. Let's go back. Jesus replied, or Jesus said, go get your husband, have him come here. And she replies, I have no husband. You guys see that? Same sentence, different tone, different interpretation. One tone, it comes from pride and arrogance. I have no husband because I don't need a husband. I've tried that. And no, no, no. They keep letting me down, so I'm taking care of myself. I have no husband because I don't want a husband. And the second tone, it's a tone of shame. I don't have a husband because nobody wants me. I'm trying. People keep leaving. So I don't have a husband because nobody loves me. And so I'm on my own. Now, many of these tones will hit a chord with some of you in the audience. And that that is, that is okay. That's okay. What I want to point out to you is that despite which tone you prefer, the core and the root and the source of the tone is the same. And so don't wait like, like, oh, I got the wrong tone. Oh, I'm going to hell now. No, 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 please, please. So it's, oh, it's okay. This is narrative. You use your imagination. Okay, there we go. All right. The seat and the root of the tone is the same place. It is coming from a story of brokenness. It does come from a story of sin. It comes from a story of rejection. And that every moment in her life that leads up to right now is playing into the story of the narrative that she tells but that she thinks is true about herself. All right? Now, I want to ask you guys another question. Have you ever worked very hard to keep some parts of your life hidden from everyone else. All right? Good. Just like you guys. Awesome. All right? Now, have you ever been in a situation where the thing that you're trying to hide most from other people is all of a sudden revealed to others and you don't have control over that? Do you guys remember what that felt like? Do you remember what your heart rate was doing? Do you remember... The, the deepness or shallowness of your breath. Do you guys remember that? You know that, st- that feeling when, when your entire hair feels like it's really cold and icy and clammy, and then it just shoots back down across your head, down your neck, down your spine, and it seems to be radiating it throughout your entire body? Yeah? You know what that is? <laughs> that's stress. That's anxiety. That's your body saying, I'm either about to have to run or about to fight someone because I feel like I'm about to die. Imagine... How the woman felt (laughs) She said, I have no husband. And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-huh, you're exactly right. And in fact, it's even kind of bizarre because he's almost like affirming her. Yeah, you're right. You've said this is true. This is the first honest thing you've said. Way to go. Awesome. Keep in mind, she has no idea who he is besides some random Jewish guy who shouldn't even be walking through here to begin with. And now the most vulnerable parts of herself are laid out on the floor for all to see. And imagine her reaction. Well, actually, you don't have to imagine it. We have her reaction. And this is what I point out. I love this woman because she is smart. And she knows what she is doing. And when she gets confronted with the biggest, like just the most overwhelming sensation, he knows who I am. Look at how she responds. Not with crying, not with fighting, not with running. She responds with skill and cunning because she is smart, because life has taught her that she needs to be smart like this. Sir, I see you are a prophet. Tell me, which mountain is more important? This one we're at, Mount Gerizim, or this other mountain, Jerusalem? See, she knows her audience. I know the best way to distract someone, a meaningless, dumb, religious question. Okay, and what's more, and she's just not making stuff up. This is how brilliant she is. There is scriptural evidence that supports both claims. How awkward is that for us right now? I know that me, for myself, I am easily fallen into this trap, and many people have done this to me. Hey, what do you think about this? And like, oh well, I got. Let me get out my charts and graphs and stuff, and I'm just excited. And really what she's trying to do is she's trying to get the attention off of her and back onto him. If I can get this guy, who she has no idea is Jesus, if I can get this guy to talk about himself, I can be safe. And then I love Jesus' response because it is both kind, caring, but also a little bit confrontational. And he has a big, long speech about mountains. And we're going to get into it because he's going to start with this big picture view and then he's going to direct it towards her and kind of call her out and confront her with what's actually going on. Okay? And if I can sum up this whole statement about the mountain business, let's just wrap this up real quick. Jesus' response, if I can put it in a short statement, will be this You're thinking too small. You have no idea what's going on. Mountains? Pfft. Mountains. Mere mountains. Hey, students over here and the youth, can you guys help me out? Help us educate our adults here. When we going through our series about mountains and worship, what was the significance of mountains? Yeah. You guys didn't know I was doing this, did you? <laughs> okay, so what's that? Heaven. In the heavens, that's right. And before the age of plain, a mountain was as close as you can get to God because God was thought to be dwelling in the sky. And so she's like, which mountain is the better one to get proximity to God? And Jesus says, oh, you have no idea, do you? It's even better than that. Forget mountains. I'm bringing heaven back to earth. Don't think about trying to get to me. I'm coming down. No, 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 you're thinking too small. Come on, you're better than that. And then he shifts and starts talking about true worshipers. Worshipers in spirit, And in truth. And it's almost as an invitation because he does kind of bring a direction to her, especially when he says, The Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and the people who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And let's get some some quick definitions here spirit, and this is the idea of that which motivates you, that which gives you direction. That is whatever the wind that pushes the sailboat across the sea. that is the same idea of spirit. It is that which inspires you. It is that which gets you going to where you're going to go and that which you use to guide you along your way. God's worshipers are, they worship him in spirit. They follow where he is leading them to go. And then truth, what is truth but honesty? And not just a sense of not telling lies, but being honest about where you're at, who you really are. Are you wrestling with reality? Or are you spending time constructing different stories to make yourself feel better? True worshipers follow where he leads and are honest with the reality that they're in. And her response? Uh, when dad gets home, then he'll sort this out. So we're not going to talk about this before. You guys have children. You guys have siblings. How many times I... You disagree, they disagree, so we appeal to a higher authority source. Okay, Dad, can you solve this problem? Okay, once again, there is a part of solving it, but it just delays the confrontation. We don't have to we don't have to deal with this now. Let's wait till the Messiah gets back. And then this is one of the few times that Jesus voluntarily reveals who he is. And it's just this woman. No crowds no religious leaders. It is just he and this woman inhabiting this space in this moment. He's like, yeah, that's me. I am that guy. I am the one that's bringing heaven back to earth. I am the one that can help you sort this out. I am the one that sees you exactly where you are, and we're here to do something about that, which leads us into stage three. The new reality. And this goes from 27 all the way down to 45, okay? And what you see is that she has to leave. It says at that moment, the disciples come around the corner, okay? And even then, and I love how the, how the text even kind of perfectly captures how awkward the situation is. Like imagine like Peter, the, you know, the thing of bread halfway to his mouth, the chewing, is going, oh, uh... Oh, this is weird, okay? And once again, not just just uh, socially awkward, but also, um, you know, a, a man alone with a woman was you just did not do that. But Jesus does it because he's Jesus; he can do what he wants, okay? I'm not gonna argue that. But so, but but let's 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 recap what's going on so far, okay? Um, Jesus confronts this woman, breaks her open spreads her out, and it says, let's deal with this. So at this whole point, she has been trying to avoid this very moment with all her might. And she is smart, and she is cunning, and she is good, because it has protected her in the past. But it's not working now, because Jesus will not be distracted from the job that he has to do right here and right now. And so, so much so, and then the text says that, that she dropped the water jar and kind of walked away. It really didn't say how fast she walked away, but there's part of me that says, I think she was running, okay? Because once again, think about it, you're in this very vulnerable space, and then now all of a sudden, you have an audience, and not just any audience, more Jews. Oh, great. This is, this is a great day. And so she drops the water jar, and then she leaves and goes back to her town. Now, according to the map, the town of Sikar is roughly about a kilometer to a kilometer and a half. Um, I don't know that in the standard systems. So don't ask me. Okay. And so she had some time to walk. And so between leaving Jesus and getting into town, something in her shifted, something in her changed. And now she's now walking into a new reality where she goes into the very place that likely has labeled her who she is, the very place where the people who have done her harm likely still live, to the place that she's been trying to avoid all the way up to this point, and she walks in and says, I met someone who knew everything about me. And not just the, the, the sinful parts, it was like a sense that he genuinely saw her, and he was glad to be with her in that space, and so something within her said, this is is different. I can't explain it, but I like it, and I want to tell you guys about it. And they all come out. And I love that, too. The disciples are trying to eat in this passage here, and they're trying to give Jesus food, and Jesus is not eating. I I like to picture him, like, just staring down the road where she came, because he knew something in her had changed, and he was waiting for her to come back. The great thing about Jesus, he had three years for his ministry. Not once was he ever in a rush. Not once was he ever in a hurry, and so he was content to wait for her return. Now this, is the, now, this is the really cool part. They want to talk about there's a tension within the audience as well in this, as the storyteller, not just the tension in the story. And this is where that kind of comes and has that payoff because I, and once again, I don't know. I was not there. Okay. But I wonder if John had taken this story he'd written about an encounter at a sacred well and if he had took it to the Jewish literature professor at the local synagogue university and said, hey, I wrote this story about an encounter at a well. What do you think? Can you grade this paper? And there's probably like wondering, like, would it even been a passing grade? He tells it so badly. This is like the worst meeting at the well story ever. Okay, I mean, let's go back over our template, okay? Number one, the man travels through the wrong country. We don't even consider those people a part of the covenant relationship. What are you doing there? Number two, he meets the wrong woman, a, a Samaritan woman. Are you kidding me? Do you understand how disgraceful, how disrespectful that is to our culture? Do you understand how wrong that is? That's not the way to do it, John. And number three, no one draws any water. It's sitting there right by the well. Maybe perhaps today it's still there. No one knows. It did not say they went back to go get the water, but we know that water was not drawn. How frustrating. I mean, teachers out there, you're like, you guys aren't getting it. I'm trying to teach you. and this is Okay. All right. Let's, let's calm down. Let's drink some water, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I heard that. But look though, but here's the brilliance. And this is why I think the biblical writers are the greatest writers that have ever been on the earth. And I have been captured and captivated by the artistry and mastery that they have in telling these stories. Because look at step four, the news still spreads. Yes, with a horn, just like that. The news still spreads. And out of curiosity, the people go out and hospitality is still offered. But there's still one missing piece. You can't have a good meeting at the well story without a marriage. There's something missing. Once again, you're doing it wrong, John. This is not the way you're supposed to do it. But fear not. John has already covered that. And in fact, we find out who is getting married in the previous chapter, in chapter 3. In the story between when Nicodemus and Jesus are married, or not married, (laughs) when they're talking... I know, forgive me. Um, When they are meeting together and then shifting over to the story of meeting at the woman, there's a small little buffer story right there in the middle. And it's a story of Jesus and his disciples and John the Baptist and their disciples. And they're meeting up. There's a ton of water. And they're like, let's start baptizing. Like, yeah, that's a great idea. And the story tells us, though, that John the Baptist's disciples are upset because everyone's going to Jesus' disciples to be baptized. And they go to John the Baptist and say, "Uh, what are we (laughs) going to do? They're all going to him. And then John has this amazing foreshadowing, but also this amazing response to his disciples. John replied, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but rather I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride has the bridegroom. Do you see it now? Are you with me? The friend of the bridegroom, that's John referring to himself, the friend of the bridegroom who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This, then, is my joy, and it is complete. He must become more important while I become less important. And in the genius of John, as he's recording these Gospels, that sets us right up to a story where a woman meets the bridegroom in the most unexpected way possible. And that when everyone else says it's not supposed to happen this way, you're doing it wrong, John says, no, 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 you're thinking too small. The beauty of the story is that the bride finds the bridegroom in a surprising way. And this has nothing to do with, with terrestrial marriage, so don't walk out of here saying, i got to find the bridegroom. No, it's talking about Jesus, not some guy. She's had relationship of relationship filled with broken heartache. And yet, the story leaves us with this idea that she is complete and content without ever being married because she has found the bridegroom, capital B, bridegroom. and That's a good thing. And That's a beautiful story. And that brings us into where we're at here today. All of you in here, you can find yourself in one of the three stages of this woman. You have stage one, the avoidance. She is dismissive, defensive, ambivalent, and suspicious of Jesus and what he's talking about. I don't get it. Or I think I get it, and I don't want to go there. It's like this idea of just, oh, well, let's, let's just hide. Let's just, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Please don't do this to me, Jesus. And you have stage two, the collision where she is terrified, she's broken, she's vulnerable and ashamed. She cannot see herself past the sins of her life. She cannot see herself past how other people have labeled her, how other people have talked about her, how other people have harmed her, and yes, even the harm she has brought upon herself. We are not making excuses here. But the point is she cannot see herself past her own brokenness. And then Jesus continues to move forward. And her response is the same. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Please stop. Please stop. And then finally, we get to stage three, the new reality. She is released. She is soothed. She's healed. She's whole. She has found the person with whom she can find safety in. And in an entire lifetime of her experiences where she felt anything but safe, she's now fine as to found that with the bridegroom and Jesus Christ and what he has done for her. If you had asked her, we're going to walk you through the darkest parts of your life, but if you get through the other side, it's going to be so much better. Would she even still have chosen that? In many ways, in my own honesty, I would say, ah, I'd rather not do that. I I can just be okay where I'm at. And thankfully, God removed that from my life of having control over that. And that's part of, once again, the influence uh, of other members of the body of Christ speaking love into my life, which has really kind of brought this into why I love this story so much. And there's one thing I want to point out about these three stages. They're all diverse, and each one of you in here, you're in one of these three stages. But one thing we must never forget All of these three stages, he is present and already at work in her heart and in your heart. This is not a get to stage three before Jesus shows up. He is already there. He's waiting for you to arrive. He says, let's do this together. I'm not going to leave you on your own. I am here. So let's go back to the question that I asked you guys to ponder about. How is the author asking the reader to envision Jesus? So in some of the ways, one of the ways that I thought of answering this, and this is all, every, each person will have a different answer, and that's okay. That's beautiful. That's expected. I would love for each person here to have a different answer about that. How fun would that be? Because then we can share. <gasps> that's awesome. Things are boring when we all agree. Okay? But this is one of the ways that I have thought of answering this question. The author wants you to see Jesus as a person who will meet you in the darkest parts of your story and lead you into a new creation, because that's what he said he's going to do. You're separated. You're alone. I don't want that. I'm going to bring heaven back to earth. I'm going to restore the order of Eden, and so that every person who experiences the love of Christ then becomes a fountain overflowing, then becomes a representative of the presence of God in their life, and also on this earth as it continues to unfold until it is done. We still have work to do, and we still have a journey to travel, but what I know for sure is that God is continuing to reveal beautiful things about you in your life if you're willing to walk with him. So as we bring this to a close, I was thinking of what kind of response. Man, what kind of response do I want to see in you guys as a result of scripture? Continue to become true worshipers of God. That's all that I would ask for you. Never be satisfied with where you're at. Okay? Once again, infinite God. Okay? If you're satisfied with where you're at, there's a whole bunch of God that you're still missing. Don't be afraid of reaching the end of the row. going, is that it? No, no, no. God is infinite. You're thinking too small. God's not afraid. He's waiting, and he desires to make you a true worshiper where you were guided by his spirit. Contrasting that to the woman who before she was guided by her own spirit, and she was anything but honest with the reality that surrounded her. And Jesus pulled her out of that as a symbol of his grace. Even before the cross was a thought in their mind, Jesus was already at work bringing redemption and healing and peace and wholeness to this world with the people that he was interacting with. And he wants to offer that to us here today. Continue to become true worshipers of God. You will never be finished. There's always something else. There's always more journey to travel. It has been a joy to be amongst you. Today is the last time that I'm going to speak to you as a member of leadership in this church from now on, it'll just be as a friend and fellow follower of Christ. And in many ways, if I want to echo the words of John the Baptist, I can find joy in that, and my joy can be complete. I myself must also decrease so that he can increase. I love you as my friends. I love you as my family. And there's really not much left to say, but thank you.